Welcome to Postwave. <laughs> Welcome to Postwave. <laughs> You're here with Eric and Trevor, and today we're talking about The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Yep, this is a book that I either one-third or one-half read a couple years ago. <laughs> hey, so, good job. Good. Yeah, it's, it's good to have an excuse to, to dive back into it. Mm-hmm. This is one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, both as like a philosophical exploration and just kind of as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's got it all. <laughs> like like a lot of Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah. So I guess today we're specifically looking at a few sections that relate to one of the themes, uh, one or two of the themes tied together, which is in in one part is exploring executions and what's it like to know that you're going to die So uh, just before we start, let me make sure I'm clear on like whose perspective each of these excerpts is from. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it's kind of kind of a weird, out of context thing. Yeah. So the first like chapter five section. Yeah. So it it starts and uh, so it starts with the prince, Prince Lev Nikolaevich Mushkin, mm-hmm. the protagonist of the book is speaking with the Yupanchen ladies who are uh, the the mother is a distant relative of him and his three daughters and he's just met them and he's kind of going off talking about all sorts of random stuff and they're all loving it mm-hmm. and so he starts talking about the experience of someone he used to know back in Switzerland which was someone who had been set to be executed but then was pardoned at the last minute right and then the second excerpt the second excerpt he sort of jumps slightly to another instance where he witnessed an execution in france Mm -hmm. and he's describing what that was like and imagining what that person must have been going through and so then later, the second excerpt, which was what chapter? Uh, I think you said 21. Tw- 21. Yeah, if yeah. you count directly from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that is describing the prince as he's kind of walking around in a delirium and thinking about random things. And it's kind of the first insight into maybe he's not perfectly mental health <laughs> he, he's not in perfect <laughs> mental health mm-hmm. um, and in this section he starts to describe what it was like when one of his epileptic fits was about to come on mm-hmm. and then the chapter 33 mm-hmm. that also from his perspective no okay so yeah uh out of out of context uh so, so, so this is actually a different character, Yapolid, who is a younger 
man of about 18 who's a, a student and who is also consumptive and has been told he has six weeks to live. Okay, well, yeah, I didn't realize he was that young. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good summary. So, Eric, could you maybe give us some insight into what you think ties these three different excerpts together? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of uh, the thrust of the whole episode, that, that I chose these particular scenes to juxtapose. So let's go through them one at a time. And we'll start with the first scene where the prince is meeting with the Yapanchan ladies and, and, and starts relating a story from someone he met back in Switzerland of someone who was set to be executed and then pardoned at the very last moment. Right. Like literally on the scaffold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like by firing squad and they've got the, the blindfold in and they've got the, official reading of like you're going to die now (laughs) and so 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 the story is that there's this one guy and he's with a group of his fellows and they're all set to be executed and so they have five minutes left and you know they're all lined up and there's the firing squad and he starts describing how he felt like there was so much time left in the world He had five whole minutes, five minutes to do everything he needs to do. So he's portions off the time that he has left. He's really proud about how he does this. He sets two minutes aside to say goodbye to his fellows. Two minutes to reflect on his life and reminisce. And one minute to make peace with his encroaching death. Yeah, to kind of like look inward. Yeah. <laughs> so much time. Yeah. Yeah. This this reminded me a lot of uh, something I think we talked about in our in our time episode about the logarithmic nature of time, and I think I think it's similar to the idea of how how when you're a kid and you have less time, uh, when you you kind of have less time under your belt that you lived, everything seems to just take a long time like the summer seems like it lasts Mm. forever and uh you know class can seem like it's going on forever (laughs) (laughs) especially leading up to summer break yeah yeah (laughs) um yeah and i i suspect that a similar thing is true at the end of your life that with that other reference point you time also seems to kind of stretch out Mm. because you have you have uh something else to kind of compare it to or like another another signpost oh wow yeah like a landmark yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's fascinating you're you're floating around somewhere in the middle and you don't really have a sense of where you are until you get close yeah yeah i mean it could also be that that uh i think think like the more active your brain is the longer it seems uh the the slower time seems to go Mm. like i think that's part of why people say when they get in like car accidents everything seems to move in slow motion because their brain is just kind of going nuts in the moment yeah there's so much more information yeah you're just just experiencing more and so more is happening within that time frame yeah yeah and i think it's like a lot of it is just retroactive 
Mm. It, it, your memory of it seems like it took forever, but of course, you know, it the, the same amount of time passed no well, matter what. Well, that's kind of interesting, though, because it would kind of imply if you have the experience of a lot of experience seeming to be longer in a short amount of time, then that would kind of highlight the fact that time is not a set in stone equally divided thing it's it's not the clock and that how whatever chunk of time from from one point to another there's infinite instances between one and the other right right um so so this philosopher jamie mctaggart that i've i've been super into recently um who has this paper on the unreality of time is something he talks about as as the specious present which is this idea that what feels like exactly now is is completely subjective and of varying length and mm. because it's so subjective and varying that that it can't possibly exist as a as a well-defined thing mm. yeah it's like looking at a number line and you can whatever section of the number line you you take there's infinite numbers along that line right right you can always just add a out of five to what the end of whatever decimal you're uh-huh. you're at <laughs> yeah that's uh <laughs> disorienting yeah i mean yeah we, we don't really know i mean there might be some some like tiniest unit of time as far as the as far as the universe <laughs> is concerned <laughs> i think there's been some studies about that like i i, I remember seeing I mean, it's it's always something that was like theoretically proposed, um, mm-hmm. but I mean, yeah, I, physicists are kind of looking for like a smallest unit of of time. Yeah, I I'm really dubious about that. I think that is kind of missing the the concept of of what it what it is to exist over time. Hmm. Uh, why is that? Because because if you did find a smallest unit of time that would only apply within a certain context, a certain trajectory through space-time. But as we've talked about before, you could conceive of different trajectories through space-time where it's a different dimension is being used as time, uh, is, is being progressed across, and that is what creates the impression of time. And that different trajectory would maybe not have the same laws of physics. And so uh, the, the constants would be different, wouldn't be constrained by the same boundaries that hold in our experience of space-time. Huh. Interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> so by, by other dimensions... Uh, you, you mean like other spatial dimensions? Yeah, well, yeah, and, and and that's that's just kind of how I think about it. Is that time and space are interchangeable? I mean, isn't that kind of the the concept of having the single word space time? I think that's part of it. I I know uh, that like inside a black hole, space and time can kind of switch mm-hmm. switch roles somehow. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, even if it's as far as just how we conceptually think about it there there is something to that Hmm. i I sort of visualize it as like a fabric 
and you have uh, it's just condense it down to two two dimensions you have your x and your y axis you know your threads going vertical and your threads going horizontal and they're mm -hmm. interwoven and you could follow one thread along and that experience of that thread is going to be like oh here's a crossing a thread and here's crossing a thread here's crossing a thread or you could take one of the threads that's going perpendicular to that and you're going to have a different experience of, of crossing different threads yeah yeah there are lots of different ways to yeah to kind of accomplish the same or similar thing mm. All right, well, we managed to get to the nature of space-time within <laughs> five minutes of talking about this book from the, from the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, so we're doing some New record. Uh, uh, literary <laughs> exploration. <laughs> this was a book episode. <laughs> really, every episode is just an excuse to talk about the, the fundamental nature of reality and... <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's different if you think about how artificial super... If <laughs> <laughs> panpsychism is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's about it for the episode. I think we've covered all the bases. <laughs> so... The guy's set to be executed. He's got his last five minutes cordoned off, and he feels like he has an extraordinary amount of time. And he describes it as each instant being so full of meaning and beauty that he wants to live this way all of the time he has left. And if by some miracle he were to be pardoned, he would live like this every day of his life forever. Right. And then, of course, he gets pardoned and can't do it. <laughs> yeah. So like after a few months, he like gets in a bar fight and dies or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. I mean, yeah, there are lots of situations where we feel like we, we, we either can do something or there's 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 only one way we could possibly live. And then our, our brains can't do it. Like we just, you know, we, we defy our own expectations that we set out for ourselves. Yeah. And maybe there's a, a physical limitation as well. Like there's this transcendent ideal that we work toward of, of like ecstatic experience, but realistically our, our physical bodies can't take that over time. You can have an instant of it, but forever over the course of time it's it's always gonna break apart again yeah yeah life life kind of averages out mm -hmm. in the end there's not really getting any any way of getting around it mm -hmm. and so he says that in this state of mind he has an extreme attention to detail he's noticing all these minute particulars he says he sees a reflection off a monastery roof and that this reflection seems to hold some sort of deep and meaningful insight that he takes note of and remembers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting. He says, I think right after that, that the thought of death is awful, but the thought that he might not die and have to go on living after having experienced this kind of mm. intense, experiencing this intensity of all the details of, of life 
um he feels like going on living after that would just be unbearable mm. yeah and so, so so this is really interesting to me because all all of these details that we just mentioned um the extreme attention to detail the dilation of time the meaningful insights the unbearableness of continuing and also he goes on and says that he remembers like asking some one of his fellows like some everyday question and just being like really interested in the response like hey mm-hmm. how are you doing i'm okay I, I, you know <laughs> and it's like really feeling the meaning in that and yeah. all of those things together is exactly what I feel felt like on the first time that I did acid. <laughs> There's another check mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, and people will talk a lot about how you can get to the same brain states that psychedelics conjure up in other ways. And I think a lot of those ways have to be somewhat extreme besides, uh, they either have to be extreme or fleeting or kind of with a, uh, like a long protracted effort, like in meditation or something like that. Mm. Um, they're yeah, v- very difficult to, to actually achieve, but something like actually being presented with your own death that immediately I feel like could, could very easily be something that, that conjures up one of those those brain states definitely that that makes me think as well of the experience of performing on stage when you have anxiety yeah (laughs) (laughs) i thought about that a lot too like like yeah like going into audition it's like okay i have five minutes now i have four minutes what am i gonna do in these next four minutes (laughs) (laughs) like it seems like it seems like it just lasts forever like you could there's like so much you could do or like i don't know but at the same time it's like you can't really do anything (laughs) Mm. but you kind of end up you end up like dividing the time and up in the same way yeah and and also because you're going up against this thing that is just terrifying to you it's Mm -hmm. like the pinnacle of like scariness (laughs) and yeah and and to face that like that that's an edge you're pushing against i think in the same way that if you do a psychedelic substance there's an edge or if you're facing an execution there's another edge yeah it's it's kind of like a, a limit of of human experience mm. that you're because i mean what, you, what your brain is is thinking when you're in a performance situation is oh there's like a lion or something that i'm gonna have to <laughs> <laughs> wrestle <fight."> the lion <laughs> yeah mm. yeah so maybe it's like the the fording of new experience where you don't have the scaffolding of your normal unmoored day-to-day life that's so far away from any landmark and you don't have that mundanity to go back to you're, you're you light up your, your mind lights up and you start experiencing because there's new things to experience Right, right. And you realize that the only reason th- things seem mundane is that they just happen so often. But actually, you know, if everything just happened once, it would, everything would be like a miracle. Mm-hmm. And also and incomprehensible, just, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, literally, like, yeah, even asking someone, like, like, how are you doing? It's like, <laughs> what, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, what, what is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it also kind of gets to, 
probably less true in Dostoevsky's time, but but our lives now are just so so cushy by hmm. especially by the standards of human history. But I mean, for us in like a developed Western country, by you know the standards of of just the world today, and it's and it's easy to just lose the the miraculousness of everything because mm. you're you're you just your senses get kind of dulled yeah you're yeah. not forced to see your own mortality on a daily basis yeah yeah or or even come close to any of those like peak states isn't exactly the right word but but kind of like pushing up against the limits of of what the human brain can do yeah yeah, you don't even have to f- feel discomfort most of the time. You don't have to feel hungry or thirsty. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew, but Dostoevsky was actually held under a mock execution when he was 27. Oh, really? I did not know that. And that is absolutely the inspiration of this whole section. And, and why oh, he wow. can describe it with such vivid detail is because he actually went through this. Wow, that's wild. What, yeah. what were the circumstances of his mock execution, do you know? Yeah, so he, as I understand it, he was arrested with being in connection with a secret society that was n- not in support of the government at the time, mm-hmm. which was under Tsar Nicholas I. And... So he was arrested and held in prison for eight months before he was told to that he was going to be executed. All of them were going to be executed. And they went through the ceremony of breaking the swords and denouncing their, their rank and uh, putting them up on the, on the scaffold and getting the gun squad out and having them blindfolded and then having someone run in last minute with a white flag and say you've been pardoned i'll praise the Tsar. he's so glorious and <laughs> merciful wow <laughs> yeah that's intense mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course the whole wow. thing was planned from the beginning as a mock execution to instill fear and and intimidate as an intimidation tactic yeah 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 i get it's still still not quite as bad as like right up into the point of them like firing and it's just like a blank round or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah that would be extreme yeah (laughs) (laughs) but still obviously this this was extreme enough because it had such a profound impact on dotsoyevsky yeah was he was he a christian throughout his entire life I don't know for sure, but it seems that that may have been the case. Yeah. I just wonder if that affected his faith at all. Yeah, wow, I wonder. It's it's interesting, though, to see, like, because he, he's pretty vivid and in detail about some of the ways this did affect him in his writing in The Idiot here. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you say those are beyond just, just the the very realistic portrayal of what it's like to to go through an execution like that Mm. well i think just the vividness and the appreciation of life and also um as we go on to the next section 
it starts to get into the morality of capital punishment. And it's clear that Dostoevsky is very opposed to capital punishment of any sort. Yeah, that, make, that makes enough sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what, what reasons does he give? So uh, let's jump into the next section and we'll ex- explore how, how he portrays this. So this next section, uh, the prince is, again, still talking to the Yvonchen ladies and now starts to describe an execution that he saw in France of a young man of 27 years old who had reportedly done some violent crime. And this one is by beheading, right? Yes, by beheading. Yeah, and it's in front of a, a pretty big crowd, right? He says like 10,000, 20,000. Mm. Yeah. 10,000 so... faces, 20,000 eyes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely changes the dynamic. Mm-hmm. So so at the start, so so he... Uh, there's there's definitely a lot of parallels to this experience and the one he just described. It's, it's almost like a continuation, but he just sort of changed the scene a little bit. And it starts with the same imagining that he has all the time in the world he talks about the streets he's being brought down the streets and there's the crowds around him and he's thinking i don't even have to think about my execution yet there's we're still on this street and there's the street after that and then after that there's the one with the baker street i've got all the all this time yeah Yes, I've definitely had those thoughts like driving to auditions before. <laughs> oh, it's going to take literally forever to get there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll never get there. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're driving to the audition and in order to get to the audition, you have to get halfway to the audition first. <laughs> How can you ever get there? It's a, it's a valid question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then there's all all the crowds, right? The, the people watching. And he just has the experience of just thinking that out of all of these people, only I, and specifically I, am to be killed. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think that would be like? Oh, my God. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My brain would just go to how like unlucky I. <laughs> right to the yeah. self pity. But then you know, if if you can truly recognize in that moment that that yourself is, is an illusion and that you are actually you are actually one with with the whole whole crowd, then mm. you know. Wow. Okay. I think that that would be the that would be the ideal way to go, but I doubt that I could actually. Uh, make myself embody that for anything more than like a split second Mm. yeah although it's interesting when when people approach that barrier of of death that who you are i think i think who you are who you are has to change and some of the things that have been true about you forever are going to change and so maybe maybe sure maybe you would not be able to embrace that but maybe actually facing your morality mortality in that very real way maybe you would be able to embrace that yeah yeah and again that's kind of a similar thing to what happens on on psychedelics like the 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 barrier to that kind of thinking breaks down a little bit Mm. 
I mean, I, yeah, I don't think you could get there if, if that kind of thinking hadn't already been placed in your head somehow. But mm-hmm. yeah, it might be it might be a little bit easier under those extreme circumstances. Easier to accept when you're when it's your only option. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, though, like that's a situation in which it seems really, really obvious that you are going to die, and none of these other people are going to die. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a right. feeling of injustice yeah yeah and like how how could we possibly be the same part of this collective consciousness or whatever if if it seems very clear that the lights are going to go out for me and not for all these other people mm. and that they're going to keep on keep on living mm-hmm. yeah so the prince sort of imagines as well that same feeling of just this isn't fair it, it uh, why just me and 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 also a sense of humiliation on that point yeah I mean, I I would be, I think, embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, uh, he he did commit some horrible crime, right? I mean, supposedly, yeah. Uh... So I mean, you you should be should be ashamed. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the point. <laughs> Shame on you. Shame. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> we we should get you a a ruler and and a, a nun habit. <laughs> yeah so so he also talks about how like the division of time gets down to the the very split second before the the um the blade falls Mm -hmm. like how he would just be there listening for the sound and he'd only be able to hear the sound for for a split second Mm. before he actually he actually was killed yeah that thought is just like But but that he would surely hear it, no matter what. No, despite the noise of the crowd, despite how quiet it was, he would hear it. Right, right. Yeah, I was I was because <laughs> I have kind of a morbid fascination with execution a little bit, I guess. Mm. Even though I, like I definitely oppose the death penalty, but like, um, but specifically with, with beheading, like how long the head remains conscious for. It's <laughs> uh. <laughs> just looking that up a little bit. It's like I mean the answer is not not very long i think but mm. but at least like i think you at least be able to have the thought oh shit i just got beheaded <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then yeah that's so curious though because your your nervous system as we've talked about before extends beyond your head there's the part mm-hmm. going down the spinal column and there's all the parts in your gut and mm-hmm. so i wonder like it, it would be like in a split second who you are is now only a portion of who you were just a moment ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would instantly lose like all bodily sensation besides just the, the pain of <laughs> everything you're being suffered. <laughs> but like also like your cognitive, because really like a part of your brain is also being just cut off. Right. Right. Yeah. It's something that you've never lived without. Mm. so your your experience would be maybe an experience of of what it's like to be similar to you but not you just just that part of you yeah although uh, yeah i I doubt whether you could discern what might be a pretty subtle difference (laughs) there in the in the few seconds with everything else that's going on but it would would definitely it would definitely contribute (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if 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 you have like a cutting off like that um 
maybe we can tie it back again to psychedelics. Like if you have like an experience where it's like a part of you is cut off, do you, does the part of you know that that's the case or do you just, does it just continue to have experience and now says, this is who I am without any awareness of that there had been another part? Ah, how, how does that connect to the psychedelics thing? Uh, I guess in a in an oblique way, um, just that I've had the experience of being cut off from my past self, from my memory, and mm-hmm. being so forced into the moment that, like, I feel like everything I know apart from that moment doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, I guess <laughs> probably the, the only time I've had that on psychedelics was my first time and I did not know what was happening at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I yeah, I, I know how kind of terrifying an experience that can be, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just and, not being able to remember anything about yourself mm-hmm. or yeah, what's going on. I remember from my first experience just being terrified that I didn't know how to play the guitar anymore. You know, I'd been playing for at that point like close to ten years, and it was such a huge part of where I where I was. And I was, I was like, I don't think I know how to do that anymore. And I, I, the thought was just so gut wrenching and ter- terrifying. Although, of course, wow. I, I I went and got my guitar and reassured myself that I could play it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in, in that sense, I feel like there's a parallel in just that sensation of being cut off from yourself or at least from your identity that you've learned to call yourself and all that you're experiencing is just a portion of that self as it exists in the present moment yeah and a similar like narrowing of your experience to the the details that are right there in front of you and and how how special they are Mm -hmm. now i've i've often felt that in the time of 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 your dying there has to be like like you're saying a, a logarithmic experience of time where maybe that last split second as as it approaches nothingness just continues to be dragged out and dragged out like like the closer you get the more experience you have mm-hmm. so that it's kind of like an infinity of time leading up until that that point of death yeah it could be something like that although i uh i mean i'm sure it depends how you die like if if i don't know Mm. like if you're in a a really bad car wreck and it's just kind of a high enough impact speed that that like you're there's nothing there's like no brain left to experience anything Mm -hmm. then i feel like it would it would be a pretty quick thing yeah, I mean, I I think you're totally right that, and this is just like my my own intuition, but I think you're totally right that different kinds of death have different experiences of of what that dying is like. But I think there might be like a constant there, like even though like a higher speed car crash where things are obliterated faster, e- even though that from an objective outward perspective is faster maybe from the internal perspective it there's like a constant of experience 
which is in infinite. Yeah, but how does your brain know to begin the infinity of experience besides just the like the, being overwhelmed by by trying to take in everything that's happening? <laughs> I like, don't know. in an instant before. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I th I think what you're saying, uh, as long as you know your brain is actually there to to be experiencing things. I mean, I think I think we know. I mean, people, you know, people have near death experiences and that kind of thing, and that, and we're almost definitely sure that that involves DMT somehow mm. being yeah. released in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Which definitely has kind of time dilation properties associated with it. I forget. Do you do you plan on doing DMT at any point? I don't know. I thought about it. There was a time in my life where I wanted to do it, but I kind of, I think, got scared away by uh, some horror stories. There's a, a girl I worked with who said she had done DMT. And from that point on for about a month, anytime she heard a tone, she would dissociate and like stop being there for like 30 seconds or more a tone like any like a, any music like a note like like a beep or maybe maybe things similar to sine waves huh that's interesting <laughs> also scary <laughs> yeah. yeah so i don't know maybe i'll wait till i die to see what dmt is like <laughs> yeah but that's the thing though i mean depending on how how you go you might not even get to experience it at all yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah it do, it does ter terrify the shit out of me <laughs> but yeah I, th I think i'll probably end up doing it someday um mm. but yeah it, it's just it's so obviously messing with something that's deeply intertwined already with the brain and and dreams and and death and all that stuff it's just it's it's really spooky yeah man <laughs> very spoopy spoop badoop so as as the hardened criminal is being led up to the scaffolding he breaks down and starts crying even though he's never cried a day in his life this hardened criminal who killed all these people and he's uh following a a cleric who is holding out a cross in front of him and saying scriptures and and holding the cross for the guy to kiss and he says that the guy is greedily kissing the cross over and over again with genuine desire so is the, is the implication that he had kind of some some very rapid religious conversion experience right there um i don't know i don't know or if maybe he was already christian the sense that I got more was just that it's like a thing, a comforting thing. You know, if it's there and if you're lost and you're facing this horrifying fate, just to have the the story, if it's true or not, doesn't matter. Just the story that God is looking out for you and God will have mercy. And all you have to do is just be grateful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very very comforting mindset no matter what you think about yeah how, how real it is yeah I mean, maybe it's essential in, in, a, in a place like that yeah yeah so, so 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 i think the biggest takeaway for 
or at least the biggest point that Dostoevsky seems to make from this parable here is the certainty. He speaks repeatedly about the certainty of knowing that you are about to die and that that certainty is just so horrible and so unbearable that it's far beyond any suffering that the person's crime could have ever caused. Right. Right. Because, because the, the person, the people he killed didn't know that that was going to happen until Mm. very late, but he has, he had to live with it, you know, for, for days and and hours and and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And those last few pregnant minutes. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? concept that the certainty of knowing you're going to die is worse than if you have the freedom to think however delusively that you might yet survive uh what what do you mean by having the freedom to think well so he talks about like how for example if you're a, a soldier in war and even if you're standing right in front of a cannon you still think maybe you can duck out of the way maybe you can survive mm-hmm. but if you're going to be executed that you know that you're going to die right right yeah i mean i, I don't know it's really hard to actually figure out how i would feel put it put in that that situation mm. um but I mean, again, I, again, I would, I would hope that I could reach some kind of place of acceptance and probably, you know, probably wouldn't be able to get that far, but, but or wouldn't be able to get this far, but just a kind of curiosity about hmm. what the hell is about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's such a, it's such a terrifying mm. concept. I just feel like I would, I would feel like a, a trapped animal or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Curiosity. Yeah. If, if you're because what would be the point of hanging on to resentment at that point what would it do right it's just gonna it's just gonna cloud the last moments you have left with with that emotion mm-hmm. and it's like at that last point you you owe no no one anything you everything you do now is for yourself huh yeah that's a it's a interesting way to look at it yeah so why hang pretty yeah why positive. why hang on to resentment towards other people if if that doesn't serve you mm-hmm. which sounds like a so, something i i could take into my own life at, at any given point <laughs> <laughs> yeah same here <laughs> we hope that you're enjoying every last minute of this episode so far if you'd like to support us somehow you can go like our page on Facebook or follow us on Instagram or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or follow us wherever you're listening to us. You can also send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com or check out our website at postwavepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.
So jumping ahead to the next section, this is later in the book where the prince is kind of wandering around on his own and we just get a little peek into his mind. He seems in a very distracted state, maybe not entirely grounded. And he starts to think about what it's like when he has his epileptic fits. Do you know if do you know if Dostoevsky had any like personal experience with those? I believe he did. I believe Dostoevsky did have epileptic mm-hmm. fits. Yeah, because the, the account he gives of it is pretty vivid. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme that shows up in some of his other novels as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, and he, he kind of uh, it kind of ties into the the same vividness of experience that uh, he was talking about prior to the execution of just in that in that very instant mm-hmm. before it he's talking about the the moments right before the the seizure comes on and he says these moments short as they are when i feel such extreme consciousness of myself and consequently more of life than at other times are due only to the disease to the sudden rupture of normal conditions therefore they are not really a higher kind of life but a lower okay and then he before that he says um He remembered that during his epileptic fits, or rather immediately preceding them, he had always experienced a moment or two when his whole heart and mind and body seemed to wake up to vigor and light, when he became filled with joy and hope, and all his anxieties seemed to be swept away forever. These moments were but presentiments, as it were, of the one final second. It was never more than a second in which the fit came upon him. That second, of course, was inexpressible. Hmm. (laughs) well yeah yeah so it's that same ecstasy it's the same coming up against the wall and so then having that vividness of experience oh yeah i mean i think they're i think they're slightly different because the the epileptic seizure thing is is like a um maybe they they create similar brain states but the right before the seizure i think i think it's just a your brain is kind of automatically like lighting itself up right it's it's not Mm -hmm. from like well it depends what kind of epilepsy you have i guess but it's uh it could be without an external stimulus yeah it's kind of a nebulous point uh because yeah you're right on one hand it is an internal thing it's just sort of alighting that way the the way the system is is prone prone to do that on its own on the other hand there's indications in the book that there is a definite, if indirect, correlation between external events and his seizures. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he, in the beginning of the book, he goes to, or he's coming back from Switzerland, where he had just spent four years recovering and under medical care. And it seemed that just the the landscape of, of being out in the countryside with the, the fresh air and space and calmness was what led him to become healthy and that the cluster fuck of St. Petersburg life and screwed up people insinuating themselves into his life is what causes him to devolve into this agitated state which brings on the seizures. Huh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and he mentions there's there's like certain uh actions or, or mental states that precede it like like searching for something that he can't quite remember right mm. yeah 
this kind of reminds me about something I heard about the similarity between like sleep deprivation and, and seizures and these different mental states, uh, include, including being on, on psychedelics and they, how they all kind of, uh, on some level mix the algorithms that are in your brain so that they, mm. you can get to kind of new, new realizations and mental states that, that you wouldn't have had before. Hmm. It's kind of like a jumbling it up and see, to see what happens. Yeah. And like the different parts of your brain talking to each other that they wouldn't normally talk to each other. Mm. There's a term in that, uh, from business school, there's like, a if you have a product from one market and you take it into a foreign market, that's like a, a particular kind of quote unquote innovation because it can be highly effective in the new mm -hmm. environment. Yeah. It's like, it's like if you, yeah, if you have a species that suddenly gets transplanted somewhere where it doesn't have any natural predators or anything, it just completely blows mm. up <laughs> population. <everything>. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. So yeah, he, so he's, talking about this this ecstasy of leading up to this one instant of pure bliss and as you were saying describing is this sense of wonder and awe and and of purest meaning right he talks about just having such a profound satisfaction of life in that experience that he can't help but know in his heart that it's true even though he's 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 a little conflicted because as you just said he talks about how he knows it's only the disease right and he's ends up in a worse state off afterward mm -hmm. more like an idiot more he can't talk he can't think he mm -hmm. can't remember but at the same time he goes on and even after that point he says but but in that moment there's such a strong sense that it was a true revelation, true, a meaningful experience that he, even now knowing that, still thinks that that must be true. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I can definitely connect that to, to psychedelics because a lot of times you'll have revelations that seem profound and, and like you figured everything out and then you get to the end of it and you feel like you weren't able to pull that out from trip and it seems like it was just it was just kind of some brain state that was being induced without any actual underlying uh significance you know i've heard that a lot that some people say a lot about their experiences and i i don't know i don't characterize my own experiences mm -hmm. like that i feel like either i have been able to pull out that kernel of truth or yeah no i feel like in every instance, I've always been able to pull out some kernel of truth that's completely revolutionary and meaningful and worth the experience, despite despite any damages that that experience might cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't say I've really had had any experiences where where I came out the other side and, and was like, oh, that didn't seem like a like actual revelation. I just I, I'm just open to the idea in theory that that you can have revelations that aren't they're like like pseudo revelations or whatever <laughs> but yeah then it's like who's to say right if you in the in the moment if that that the version of you that is experiencing that says it's true 
and then the version of you after that experience who's a different version of you doesn't see it anymore because they're not in the same experience and so looking externally back at your previous experience you see that and you say i i don't see the kernel of truth there so maybe it wasn't there but who are you to say <laughs> yeah i mean i think i mean I think, after all yeah i mean i think you're really yeah. the, the person is the only one who can really decide you know whether whether the thing is true or not mm-hmm. um but yeah, especially in the case of a, of a seizure like that, where it, it's just this kind of like sudden shock of, of signals kind of disorganized firing, whatever. Or I think in seizures, sometimes it's like really, really organized, like all at once. That, that seems to be what Dostoevsky is, is describing yeah. here is this symphony of everything yeah. in order. Yeah. It's interesting. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe the, the, the feeling of meaning is is tied somehow to like very ordered firing of or ordered firing of neurons i don't know mm. It'd be interesting maybe maybe you der- derive the meaning from the structure that is inherent in in that mm-hmm. ordering i mean <laughs> that the feeling of, of meaningfulness is some pattern of, of firing of neurons in the brain because that's all any feeling is but um <laughs> i just wonder i just wonder if it's like inherently more ordered somehow Hmm. well that makes me think of counterpoint music where you like like for for our lay listeners out there that includes composers like bach where you have very particular rules about how the lines interact and there's a very clear structure there and that that structure is what gives the music meaning, the, the rules that each of those lines follows in order to interact with each other. Yeah, and it's that uh, there's like, you know, four, two or three or four or five different parts, and they all have their own internal logic. And if you listen to them one at a time, they would, they would seem beautiful on their own because they follow certain guidelines mm-hmm. about contour and, uh, and rhythm and all that stuff. And then when you put them together, they have this other level of order that's that's vertical. So mm-hmm. there's yeah, there's yeah. like multiple levels of of order happening. Mm. And then they're they're all kind of the same rules though, right? E- even if if you look at it vertically or if you look at it like a melodic, like 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 you couldn't have parallel fifths even if it's being outlined in the melody or if it's one line and the line above it, right? right yeah they are i think there are slightly different rules because there's nothing really about um i mean there's nothing about harmony really in the in like Mm. individual like individual line what makes a good melody sure Mm. yeah yeah so yeah you're right they're definitely unique but maybe they're related they they have some some cross section Mm -hmm. there so at the kind of at the end of this section he says after these seizures feel then as if i understood those amazing words there shall be no more time mm. <laughs> what, do, what do you think he means <laughs> i think he means that he's experiencing in the moment an eternity he's experiencing the present moment as it exists outside of time therefore in eternity mm-hmm. yeah and he, he's also just getting a, a sense of how subjective it is and how it can uh, expand and contract yeah that that that's curious though because it makes me think if if you have this ecstasy of extreme order everything lining up and you have 
you perceive it as being a meaningful experience, then if that meaningful experience is a moment in space-time that's there and will always be there, isn't that worth it no matter what comes <laughs> after? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, unless what comes after it is just, you know, 100% pain for 50 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> then probably no it's not worth it but <laughs> hmm well that's curious though because because Dostoevsky would seem to imply the opposite or at least the idiot seems to think that if he has that transcendent experience it's worth it even if after that because it describes what he's like after the fit and it, it's not a happy sight it, it, it's just really kind of depressive not not engaging with the world not finding any meaning with the world just kind of living as a zombie and yes leading to very painful situations because he's unable to interact with the world around him mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean obviously I, I was exaggerating but yeah in his case it seems like it would be it would be <laughs> worth it if it's if it's just you know like momentary stupefaction well, well not momentary like permanent lasting damage from that oh really D does he say it gets like worse each time yeah 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 a little spoiler there <laughs> but yeah yeah, I'll, I'll probably mention it more in the next section too. But I, I was, I was kind of reading up on Terrence McKenna's last, last few months, and he, he had this brain tumor that, uh, apparently, hmm. right before they discovered it, he had this, this seizure that that he described as the most intense psychedelic experience of his life, or one of them, which is, which is saying something for him. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. And. Yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, there, there's definitely, there's definitely some precedent for these these being intensely significant and 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 meaningful uh, experiences, not mm. not just kind of disordered, uh, like overwhelming uh, stimulus or whatever. Mm. Yeah. I remember hearing uh, Terrence McKenna talking about his experience uh, after he knew he had the brain tumor when he was speaking with his neurosurgeon and the neurosurgeon was saying that, well, well he, uh, back up, and he, and he asked the neurosurgeon, so my th thoughts are represented by my brain, right? So if the brain tumor is in there, then that's, would that be representing thoughts mm. that I have in my mind? And the neurosurgeon said, yeah, yeah I suppose so. And Terrence was just wondering like what, what thoughts in my mind are causing, are that tumor? <laughs> yeah. And I forget, but it was like in his, in his like frontal cortex or something like some, right. Oh, well, let me, wow. let me look it up. Cause I, I, I don't, I don't know. Get that wrong. Um, yeah, there's this good Wired article that maybe I can uh, you can put in the show notes. His doctor also described that the tumor is a fruiting body that was sending mycelia through the through the surrounding tissue. Uh, I mean, not it wasn't literally fungus, but that's the way his doctor described it. Um, 
it's like a similar thing uh, so so not literally sending mycelia just like a, a, a yeah, parallel to that pattern um but yeah it was in his right frontal oh. cortex which is the the i think from what i understand kind of one of the, the conscious like higher higher thinking parts of your brain yeah. jesus <laughs> makes you wonder though like if you could change your thought patterns maybe you could eradicate the <laughs> I don't think that's how that works <laughs> i mean why not (laughs) like if you if it i mean if if hypothetically you could isolate which thoughts were it well i i think that i mean that's not possible for other reasons (laughs) it's not possible for other reasons beside this but i think that does kind of get to the the free will changing your own brain type thing Hmm. i i mean if you can make decisions then why not be able to make decisions about things that go on inside your own mind? Like that's kind of like the, the quintessential place where you can make changes if you can make changes anywhere. <laughs> yeah. If I, I don't think the, the changes you're going to make are, well, we, we don't really know how the brain's work, brain works. I was going to say that the, the changes you would make wouldn't change your cell's DNA, but I think actually, I mean, this is part of what I find really fascinating about the brain is I think, uh, they found that neurons can change their own DNA somehow. So mm, yeah. I've heard that as well. So, I mean, but the, the quote unquote thought you might have to think to, to get the, the cancer to go away might be so like complex and technical and it might mm. require such sustained concentration on it that it would basically be <laughs> impossible. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, who's to say impossible, right? Like, <laughs> how do you know? But yeah, okay. Maybe, so maybe it's impossible, but maybe it's not, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to go with, with not possible on that one. It's just because just you feel yeah. like it? <laughs> <laughs> Seems. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go the other way just because I can. <laughs> You mean because that's the only way you can go? <laughs> no, I changed my mind. You're right. No, actually, I changed my mind. You're wrong. <laughs> Any more thoughts on this section? Let's go yeah. on to the next one. So here we have, uh, we're, we're departing from the prince's point of view and moving on to Yupoli, the young student who is consumptive and has been told he has six weeks to live. And this kid is kind of an interesting character. He's bitter a lot of the time and resentful and maybe with good reason. I mean, that's a very bleak situation that he's in, although not nearly as bleak as many in the society that Dostoevsky depicts here. But all the same, he's just in this really sorry state and in this social setting where there's no compassion. I think that's that's one of the most jarring and blatant things about this this section. And and, and this is maybe a couple chapters after uh, the the section of this that I sent to Mm -hmm. you. But uh, it becomes just so painfully clear that, that this is such, such a bleak social landscape that, of, of course, he's going to harbor resentments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so he's 
terminally ill and he's kind of bitter and he just sits and stares at the wall across outside his window and doesn't have any motivation to do anything to get up or study books and he talks about like how he starts reading a book and then realizing that he's never going to get to the end of it and so he throws it down to the ground yeah damn <laughs> and he's he's dying of consumption right yeah he is yeah and and so so this this section is he had written that the day before he he came to the prince's house he'd written out just this kind of sprawling uh what's the what's the word uh he he written, he'd written out this sprawling stream of consciousness he calls it a confect, confession but it's just this rambling letter where he talks about just his experience and he comes to the prince's house the next day with the intention of reading it aloud in front of people and again we have the same theme as with the executions the sensation he knows he's going to die and only he is going to die he talks about how like even he sees a fly in a sunbeam and says even that fly knows his place in the symphony of life but i don't have a place in the in in life because i'm know that i'm going to leave life mm -hmm. i mean that doesn't totally follow for me <laughs> yeah it's interesting there's there's holes to that but at the same time i think it's it's worth exploring. What what, what what do you see with with it? Why why doesn't that hold water? Well, I for mean, you? if if we're using the symphony analogy, it just means that you have a rest coming up, and you you played your whole part, and <laughs> now you have to rest. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I like that way of looking at it. <laughs> rest thirty six bars to the end. Tacit. <laughs> alas. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's a percussionist playing playing Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think it kind of assumes that everyone knows they have more of a part than he does when in reality no one really knows. Or mo most people don't know what they're what part they're playing, really. Yeah. They're just kind of doing you know that... taking things one one day at a time and and just kind of taking things mm. as they come. Yeah, there's that illusion of constancy, right? But then, like, anyone could die at any moment. Mm -hmm. So I guess what what sets this this section apart from the other two is that he's he knows he's going to die, but the the period of time is is much longer, right? It's it's months instead of mm. hours or or minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It, but but it still has the certainty, right? The certainty that it will mm -hmm. happen. Yeah. Have you have you given much thought to to what you would do if if you if you found out you had some terminal disease and you had like months to months to live? I haven't given it a lot of thought because honestly, I don't know what I would do or what that would be like, and so I I can't really prepare for it. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I mean, the I would at least want to travel and go see one thing that I hadn't seen yet. Mm. you know i wouldn't want to go crazy like trying to visit a bunch of different things but yeah i, I would at least want to want to go see something like incredible that i hadn't seen before mm. and you know spend a lot of time with family and and write music 
this. Um, mm. Although I, this is uh, the other other place I wanted to bring up Terrence McKenna because he he kind of said, yeah, you know, I just want to like sit in my house with my wife and smoke weed mm-hmm. and just contemplate existence. Mm. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah, that works too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you yeah, put- very much not not you know trying to travel and see a bunch of the world. Mm, yes. It's just having having new experience. Yeah, yeah. Trying to like cram stuff in. Yeah. <laughs> having the new experience of trying to cram cram stuff in. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it depends who's doing the cramming though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so you probably talks about how he he describes this good deed he did where he helps this guy who was in a really Kafkaesque situation and mm-hmm. then he thinks about how he doesn't have the time to do that ever again like the amount of time that that took if he were to embark on that he wouldn't be able to carry it out anymore and so he, he just has this sense of like what's the point of trying to do anything like that if if you don't have the time to finish it yeah, doesn't he? He also kind of talk about how much a good action will will actually reverberate. Mm. Yeah, which my my impression was that he was kind of hopeful, but maybe I was like misreading things. Mm. No, I think you're right. He 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 seemed really like proud of the thing he did, and that that it would have lasting impact. And I think that was why he's so bitter about like not having the time to be able to do that ever again. Yeah, because he sees how how big the impact can potentially be from something like that. Mm-hmm. Makes me think though, like, could could he not try to do a smaller good deed in the time that he has left, if that's what he wants to do? I guess so, but I mean, it's it's also, I mean, the 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 good deed he stumbled into was was almost purely by chance. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so so like, I mean, he could you know, besides you know like things like volunteering at a soup kitchen which i don't even know if that like existed <laughs> I, I <don't> <laughs> cough blood into the soup <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it seems like he kind of lucked into this this particular mm-hmm. uh good doing opportunity mm. but the the same the same idea comes up as before of of states of sickness being altered states similar to dreams or or drug-induced states right like he has this whole hallucination of uh of rogogen like coming in right and just sitting there silently yeah 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 uh yeah this this other character who's just this kind of creepy guy coming into his room silently and just staring at him but that when he when he talks to the maids and stuff afterward, like no one had been in, and there's no way he could have gotten in. Yeah, and the door was like latched or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so he describes that, and he also describes this dream that he had, where there's like this horrible scorpion bug thing in his room, and it's like he's trying to get it, and he's terrified of it, and and then it like creeps up on the wall behind him and he jumps away and then like the mm-hmm. 
his mates come in and they're like scared and then then the big dog comes in and the dog is terrified of it and it's just Mm -hmm. like horribly creeping along the ground and then the dog like bites it and then it bites the dog's tongue and there's like gross goof coming out and the dog's like whimpering and in pain and and backing away and stuff Mm -hmm. and he says that if you have if his experience now includes things like that and like the image of Ragajan just sitting there staring at them in this horrible countenance like what's the point of living if if that exists yeah it's kind of kind of the opposite of the the transcendental state of the uh all the other it really is <laughs> characters <laughs> I, I think probably this perspective was brought in in direct contrast to the prince's experience mm-hmm. which is, 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 is yeah it's right it's so the opposite it's it's like each instant is so precious and meaningful to the prince that it's worth it despite whatever it cost and for Ippolit, it's the opposite. It's not worth it, no matter what, because of the cost. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if any of it has to do with Ippolit being uh, younger, like eighteen, than mm. the other, the other less experienced. Guys. Yeah, and just kind of, kind of like doom and gloom, eighteen-year-old <laughs> moody, you know, <laughs> Reese re- Nietzsche, <laughs> uh, edgy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah edge lord <laughs> yeah um yeah but i think also i mean if it was if it was a more like oppressive thing like a sickness that wasn't giving you any like you know seizures that have this moment of of kind of ecstatic clarity i mean i i could see how that would give you a little bit different mm. mindset T- to me it seemed like the core of why Yapolid resents his existing in this state is because of the certainty that he knows he's going to die like for example you know he has about six weeks he's been told but let's say he didn't know for sure if he had reason to believe he might be able to live for a little longer maybe he would feel more like engaging with his life and like going outside and interacting with people and maybe doing good deeds because he is not just sitting in his room staring at the wall in resentment and and maybe he'll have a chance as he says that he wants to do to do good if he goes out and engages with the world Uh, but but then because he knows that he's going to die in this time frame he he gets in the mindset of what's the point of going out when when he he has the sense that there's this particular time limit after which there's no hope yeah it kind of gets to the question like if you uh like would you want to be told when you die if you could know Mm. yeah yeah (laughs) i don't i don't think i would like i like yeah i think most people would say no (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) this is something that's really interesting to me that we have this theme across all of these at least across the executions and eupolid's experience that the certainty is the worst thing 
and this seems to be Dostoevsky's core argument against capital punishment. It's not worth it because the certainty is so above and beyond. And he, he does a really good job here, I think, explaining how that's the case. But from my own experience, of course not with uh, death, but of grief in general or bad things happening in my life, it's always the uncertainty that is the worst by far. And then when you finally know that the worst has happened, then that's, it comes as a relief and you can accept that. But it's the not knowing that just like completely tears me apart anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I definitely get what you're saying. I mean, yeah, but I think part, part of it is, is that, yeah, like most of our lives are, are uncertain and we have almost no things that are for sure. Mm -hmm. So when we have something that is certain and it's like, you know, hugely negative, like death, it just kind of, it it really it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around but i think i mean there's you know when when something is is this absolute certainty and then it happens then it's over then it's over right mm -hmm. but in the case of death like it's not like that is the end mm -hmm. so you know you know it's going to happen and but you will always be approaching it until you know you're not there anymore yeah <laughs> i feel like that's you know mm. that's that's the thing that gets you mm -hmm. yeah i can definitely see that and i think that that ties back into the, what you were saying before about like if you can accept that the world around you is also you then even after you die you quote unquote still exist because the rest of the universe still exists yeah well and also if if my if my theory about time and consciousness is true you're just gonna respawn at the, the beginning of your life anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he does he mentions that that gigantic insect as representing some very almighty dumb irresistible power mm, like maybe that's his disease yeah only he says before that i beheld in some strange and impossible form that dark dumb irresistibly powerful eternal force mm. yeah it could either be his disease or just kind of the like the inevitability of of death or something mm. that's which which in its own way is is kind of transcendent and and meaningful in the same way that uh that the, the prince is talking about with the uh with the the seizures mm -hmm. um and the execution but it's like the flip side dark version of that yeah it's the whereas the prince is coming to terms with his death and accepting it yapolid is rejecting it and he's gonna go kicking and screaming to the last instant yeah one other thing that really stood out to me about yapolid's confession tirade is he seems really upset and put off by the fact that people are unhappy he has this sort of sense that why how dare you be unhappy you get to live i'm going to have to die how dare you suffer how dare you not mm -hmm. make the best of your experience and 
reject suffering and fight your way out of it. Yeah, and I think that that was that kind of gets back to what the prince was talking about with the Apanjan women at the, in the beginning about how how the the guy swore that if he if he wasn't executed then he would live mm. for the rest of his life in that state of just you know soaking up every moment and and you just can't you can't do that no matter <laughs> how hard you try. I mean, like maybe you know maybe that's what people who who have just done like thousands of hours of meditation the place they get to, but mm. um, I don't know. It's it's definitely not not something that that everyone or or most people by far can can actually sustain Mm. i think and he goes on as well and it's not just like how dare you suffer but also like how dare you express unhappiness like he, he talks about if just going out on the street and seeing a guy pass by in a carriage and the guy is scowling and just being so horrified by that like why are you scowling why why not exult and and yeah yeah maybe it's like not something you can sustain on average but yeah i mean you know people people can kind of improve their outlook Mm -hmm. definitely and 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 it seems like to like he's making a moral judgment against people uh, on the grounds of yes on one hand their own personal outlook but also how that expresses to the world around them like if you're upset and you stay at home and don't have any interaction with anyone then well that's one thing but if you if you're outside and scowling and someone sees that you you have lent to the experience of suffering in the world and and you've sort of conveyed that upon the world in a certain way yeah and it's gonna have like have a ripple effect Mm -hmm. if if you influence that other person yeah he talks about this as well i think in the brothers karamazov there's just a passing scene of like if you go about in your day and you've got a scowl on or you're going out around in a rage or something like that and you may not think anything of it but if there's a child there and they just happen to see you the child will notice and even if you don't notice the child you've created that horrible visage within the mind of the child and so mm-hmm. so like yeah yeah what do you think about that yeah i mean kids are pretty impressionable in anything i mean they're, they're just soaking up all the information they mm-hmm. they see so yeah something like that'll have it might have a way bigger impact on them than than it would on a normal person mm-hmm. and yeah and you never know like you know if someone's already having a or in, in a bad place and, and you just add that last bit of that last bit of of unpleasantness to just like totally you know um uh you know makes their day just that much worse or spins them into into you know just a worse and worse mental state Mm -hmm. because you think about like kids who are impressionable and they'll see patterns of dysfunction and they will repeat it they take Mm -hmm. in the world and then they mirror it and put it out there maybe you've known a parent who is prone to go around in rages and then you see their little kid 
mirroring that and also going around in a rage mm-hmm. and in one sense there's this like almost comical because it's like oh yeah it's like a little puppet but then on the other hand it's kind of sickening yeah because the yeah, the kid doesn't know any better mm-hmm. so you goes on and says why why don't i just now, now that i know i'm about to die why don't i just go out and kill 10 people just for fun because <laughs> like he's like it doesn't matter y'all suck um why don't i just do it just because like just to see the look on their faces when they uh want to try to convict me or something <laughs> yikes like what are you gonna is that, do is that in this chapter uh it, it might be a little bit further on <laughs> yeah i did read i did read a little bit more the next chapter because it it begins with i had a small pocket pistol <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't get super far though. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I did read that part though. Um, yeah. What if I were now to commit some terrible crime, <laughs> murder 10 fellow creatures, for instance, or anything, but yeah. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Convict me to death? <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you, sucker. Yeah. <laughs> 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 on that note. Any uh, <laughs> final thoughts? <laughs> yeah, there's just one more quandary takeaway that this section led to me, gave to me, which is if you have this certainty of death that's so horrible in these five minutes before you're executed, and if you accept, which I don't necessarily accept, that it's not worth that amount of suffering, and then you have the certainty that you're going to die in six weeks and that it's not worth it to live in that period if you're not going to be able to contribute and continue to exist, then what about when you know just in general that at some point you're going to die, like that it is an inevitable thing that's going to happen in your future? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like that thought has has hasn't really ever gotten to me i mean like i'm I'm afraid of dying but only afraid of that it'll be painful hmm. you know interesting i'm more i'm more like the thing that really gets me is just like bad things happening other than that hmm. <laughs> i mean i do feel feel like i you know i, I definitely wouldn't want to live forever so the idea of of dying it, it has to happen at some point hmm. and i don't and i you know the fact that it happens might make life even more meaningful because it it makes it sweeter so i guess i mean i guess that that's kind of along similar lines to to the feeling that the the people were having before they were executed mm. just on like a on a bigger bigger scale cuz i think the i think the they're responding differently to like 6 weeks versus 5 minutes is is maybe more just a result of the specific people rather than the just the time length of time yeah definitely and so i don't know for, for me there's the takeaway that like yeah you know you're gonna die at some point it might be sooner it might be later that doesn't stop you from engaging with your life now and making finding meaning in it as you're here and and eventually yeah. you won't be so yeah. why not yeah yeah that, that's pretty uh pretty straight up existentialist <laughs> thinking <laughs> just you know did you ever have to read the uh the stranger 
by Camus in, in high school. No. Yeah, some, similar idea. Actually, I think it's, uh, I think I'm remembering this right. I think it's someone else who's getting executed. Hmm. And he, he basically comes to the conclusion that, you know, it's, it's going to be someday. And what difference does it make whether it's in two days or in two years? Hmm. Is, is there a, does he come to any sort of conclusion there? Yeah, I mean that's the conclusion. It, it it doesn't make a difference whether it's in you know in in two days or two years or twenty years. So he he doesn't fear it anymore. Mm. That's an interesting. Yeah, I mean I I see that perspective. I yeah I I don't know. I mean I I, I definitely see see the the value in that ex- perspective, but I don't know if that is something that I would hold to be true for myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess I don't really get behind being indifferent to it being, you know, two weeks or two years or whatever, because um, you know I think as long as it's it's fairly good experience, the more is more is always better, even if it's mm. neutral. Um, mm-hmm. But the the other side of the existentialist thing is is kind of life uh, doesn't have any inherent meaning, and it's just what whatever you you give to it. Mm. Yeah. Which I definitely, definitely do uh, get behind. Yeah, maybe if you're in a repressive system, like a, if you're in prison, or if you're in a messed up society where everyone's suffering, maybe there's more inclination to think that it's doesn't matter, that it's not worth it. But if you have the freedom, then maybe it is. Yeah. Well, if you take uh if you take it as as life is just, is kind of neutral by default then yeah if you're if you're in un- unpleasant circumstances then it would seem kind of mm. kind of meaningless but actually i mean the, now that i think about it um I, I think it's true that there's no inherent meaning like there's not yeah i'm not actually sure what i believe because i because mm. one you know we're the we're the small fraction of a percent of the universe that is experiencing consciousness so that on its own is is insanely meaning insanely meaningful mm. and then i feel like that there there is kind of a, an objective uh you know make the world a better place for the people you're with while you're here somehow in some mm. form <laughs> you know don't don't make it shittier <laughs> mm. and of course it's relative what what better and mm. shittier actually mean but yeah well i mean if if you if you can make meaning if you can find your own meaning in life then it would follow that you can create more meaning if you have the freedom to do so if you're in an environment that cultivates that yeah yeah definitely <laughs>